Lesson 1 for June 25 to July 1. The Restoration of All Things. Our lessons each quarter have an author, and that author writes the lessons which are then edited and then produced in a format either digitally or in a booklet form uh, for us to study each week. At the time of writing this quarter's Sabbath School lesson, Gaspar Colin was chair of the Department of Religion at Washington Adventist University in Tacoma Park, Maryland, in the United States. It was also helped written by May Ellen Colin, his wife, who is a director of Adventist Community Services International at the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists. They served as missionaries in Africa and the former Soviet Union for nine years and have two grown children and two grandchildren. To introduce the series of lessons, they have written this. The Whole Gospel. A pastor held up his Bible before the congregation. It was in tatters, full of holes. In seminary, he and some classmates had gone through his Bible and underlined every passage that dealt with justice, poverty, wealth, and oppression. Then, with a pair of scissors, they cut out every verse dealing with those topics. When they finished, his Bible was in shambles. Throughout Scripture, these themes are so central that there is a lot missing from the Bible when they are removed. The tattered Bible speaks powerfully and loudly about the things that God cares about. What should this story say to us as Seventh-day Adventists? It should say a lot. Research shows that approximately 30% of Seventh-day Adventists are involved in meeting the needs of the community outside the church. What about the remaining 70%? Jesus called his entire end-time church to proclaim and live the whole everlasting gospel, as we read in Revelation 14, verse 6. What is the whole gospel? Jesus' mission and ministry depicted it in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 21, and they portray the whole gospel as more than preaching the truth of salvation by faith, however foundational that is to all that we do. Jesus shows us that preaching the gospel also means tangible expressions of love and compassion for the poor, hungry, sick, broken-hearted, oppressed, outcast, and imprisoned. It's about biblical justice and undoing what the devil has done, at least to whatever degree we now can as we look forward to Jesus' ultimate triumph over the evil at the end of the world. This quarter we will explore this holistic version of the everlasting gospel and will examine the role of the church in impacting communities with this gospel. We define the church as a community of people who, together, do not exist for themselves, but who are called out to live and to preach the everlasting gospel as expressed in the ministry of Jesus. This means not only preaching the gospel, but living it in our lives through ministering to the needs of those in our local communities. Organisationally, how does your local church serve those in need? All ministries of the church, for example, health, family, youth, Sabbath school, deacons, deaconesses, etc., exist to work together for serving the community as well as church members. Adventist Community Services, ACS, units or centres work from the church to demonstrate the gospel and prepare the way for hearing the word of God. In some parts of the world, ACS is called Dorcas, 
Adventist men, or some other name. The Adventist Development and Relief Agency, the Seventh-day Adventist Church's humanitarian agency with a non-governmental organisation status, though it does not operate from a local church, is another important part of reaching those in need. How do you personally express your appreciation for what God has done for you in Christ? One church member put it this way. On the street, I saw a small girl, cold, shivering in a thin dress, with little hope of a decent meal. I became angry and said to God, Why did you permit this? Why don't you do something about it? For a while, God said nothing. Then that night, he replied quite suddenly, I certainly did something about it. I made you. Sabbath afternoon, June 25. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we begin a new series of lessons that are just so important for us to understand, because from your word we're going to find out what you expect of us as people of your church. And as we learn, we pray that our lives may be impacted, our church may be impacted, and that our community may be impacted as well. We pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us as we open the pages day by day. In Jesus' name, amen. Our memory text this week is Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. Let's read that again. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27 from the New International Version. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. All one has to do is look around at the world, at the neighbourhood, at oneself to see the point. And the point is, something is terribly wrong. It's called the fall. It's called sin. It's called rebellion. And it's called the great controversy. And yet, the good news is that it's not permanent. It's not going to last forever. Jesus came, died for the sins of the world, and promised to come again. And when he does, nothing of this world will remain. Instead, a new kingdom, his eternal kingdom, will begin. And, as it says in Daniel 2.44, And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all those kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. What a restoration! But we don't have to wait until the second coming for the restoration to begin. Those who are in Christ are a new creation now, we read in 2 Corinthians 5.17, and we are predestined to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus now, as we read in Romans 8.29. Also, he calls us and empowers us as his church, so that we can work toward the restoration of others as well.
Sunday, June 26, The Image of God The Bible says that humanity was originally created in the image of God. An image may be either two-dimensional, such as a mirror reflection or a photograph, or three-dimensional, such as a statue or a hologram. An image can also be intangible, such as a mental image, an idea that we have in our heads. What does the Bible mean? Question. Read Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. How does Scripture explain what being made in God's image means? Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. We're also going to look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, which reads, Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. And Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And we're going to compare that with 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. With the creation of our first parents, God set a new standard for life on earth, man and woman. They alone, among all the other creatures made during that time, were in God's image. They were not evolved apes, as human beings, they and we are radically different from all of the other life forms on earth, and any theology that lessens this difference degrades humanity. God called their name Adam, we read in Genesis 5 verse 2. That is, both of them, male and female, though different and distinct beings, were still one. Together in their fullness and completeness, they represented the image of God. The nature of God's image is holistic. As we read in the book Education, page 15, when Adam came from the Creator's hand, he bore in his physical, mental and spiritual nature a likeness to his Maker. End of quote. The word for image in Hebrew is tselem, T-S-E-L-E-M. The word for likeness is dimuth, D-E-M-U-T-H. These words can connote the physical and the inward dimoth, which includes the spiritual and mental aspects of humanity. Ellen White recognises this when she says, Man was made in God's image, both in outward resemblance and in character. A short quote from Patriarchs and Prophets, page 45. Deuteronomy 6, verse 5 mentions the various dimensions of the human being, soul, spiritual, heart, mind, mental, and strength, physical body. There is a similar pattern in 1 Thessalonians 5.23. A human being made in God's image would naturally include all these dimensions. So, to finish today, though there's much more to this idea of being made in the image of God, the Bible is clear. 
Human beings are a distinct and unique creation here on earth. No other creature comes close. Why is it important for us to always keep this distinction in mind? Monday, June 27. The Fall and its Aftermath The Bible does not say how long a period of time existed between the finished creation and the fall. Days, weeks, years, we just don't know. What we do know, however, was that there was a fall and the consequences were immediate and apparent. The first mentioned result of Adam and Eve's eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was their sudden realization of their nakedness, as we read in Genesis 3-7. They sought to cover themselves from the presence of God. Their robes of light now disappeared. Their intimacy with God was disrupted because of their newly discovered intimacy with the self-centeredness of evil. God then sought to educate the first couple in regard to the consequences that their sin had created for them. Question. Read the following texts and identify the immediate consequences of Adam and Eve's sin as seen in each passage. Also, how are these same consequences manifested today? First of all, we'll look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 8 to ten. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And Genesis chapter 3 and verse 12. Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And verse 13, And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And Genesis 3, verse 16, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And finally, verses 17 to 19. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake, in toil you shall eat of it, all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. No question, the fall was real. The fall was hard, and the fall was terribly consequential for our race. The long, sad story of human history, right up to current events, reveals the tragic consequences of sin. How thankful we can be, then, for the promise that one day the tragedy of sin is going to be over and done and never repeated. 
So to finish the day, what are ways that we, every day, live with the consequences of our own sins? Tuesday, June 28, Enmity and Atonement Question. Read Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. What does God mean when he says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers? What hope can we find here for ourselves? Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The word enmity in Hebrew shares its root with the Hebrew word hate, and the word enemy. By eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the couple placed themselves and all humanity at enmity with God. As we read in other verses in the Bible, in Romans 5.10, For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And Colossians 1.21, And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now He has reconciled. And James chapter 4, verse 4, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friends Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. God's promise here implies that God would set in motion his plan to draw humanity back to himself, thus shifting their enmity to Satan. Thus, by shifting the enmity from himself to Satan, God would establish an avenue through which he could save humanity while at the same time not violating the principles of his divine government. This is what is known in the original sense as atonement. What God has done and is doing in order to ultimately restore what had been lost in the fall. Question. What do the following texts reveal about atonement? Leviticus 1, verses 3 and 4, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and 1 John 1, 9. Beginning at Leviticus chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. If his offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. And 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. And 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
Theologians sometimes use the word expiation to talk about how this atonement works. The Latin root expiare, E-X-P-I-A-R-E, means to atone for, and the idea involves reparation for a wrong deed. Someone did something wrong, he or she violated a law, and justice demands a penalty to pay for that wrong. In English, it is sometimes said that the guilty person owes a debt to society because of what he or she did. In our situation, we sinned. But in the plan of salvation, the atonement, Christ's sacrificial death, relieves us from the legal consequences of that wrongdoing. Instead, Christ himself paid the penalty for us. The punishment that legally, yes, God's government has laws, should have been ours, was given to Jesus instead. That way, the demands of justice were met, but they were met in Jesus instead of us. Though we are sinners, though we have done wrong, we are pardoned, forgiven, and justified in his sight. This is the crucial and foundational step in the restoration of all things, as it says in Acts chapter 3 and verse 21. Wednesday, June 29, Restoration in Jesus. Galatians 4.19 reads, My little children, for whom I labour in birth again until Christ is formed in you. We were originally created as perfect and complete beings in a perfect and complete world. Unfortunately, this pre-fall paradise was lost through sin, and the world as we know it, filled with death, violence, suffering, fear, and ignorance. The plan of salvation was created in order to bring this world back to its original perfection. Christ came in order to regain what was lost in the fall. Writing in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 595, Ellen White writes, In the beginning, God created man in his own likeness. He endowed him with noble qualities. His mind was well balanced, and all the powers of his being were harmonious. But the fall and its effect have perverted these gifts. Sin has marred and well-nigh obliterated the image of God in man. It was to restore this that the plan of salvation was devised, and a life of probation was granted to man. To bring him back to the perfection in which he was first created is the great object of life, the object that underlies every other. End of quote. Though this restoration won't be completed until the new heavens and the new earth, the process already has begun in us now. Question. Read Galatians 4.19 again. Whatever his immediate concerns, what important spiritual point is Paul making here? My little children, for whom I labour in birth again until Christ is formed in you. In Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, Christ himself is presented as the image of God, the express image of his person, it says. Let's compare that with... Um, 
some other texts. We'll first of all look at John 14, verse 9. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father, so how can you say, Show us the Father? And Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. And Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He desires to unite with us in order to restore God's image in us. If we consent, Christ, who is the image of God, can be in us, as it says in Colossians 1.27. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The ultimate experience of being restored in his image will occur at Jesus' second coming. As we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 49, And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. And 1 John 3 and verse 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. However, when Christ is in us, and we in Christ, the process of being restored in God's image begins on this side of heaven. When that happens, we will long to bring those in our community to the one who can restore them as well. And so to finish today, though the work begins now in us, to restore us, why must we always remember that restoration won't be totally complete until the second coming of Jesus. Day June 30, the restoring role of the church. As we've seen, our world, though created perfect, had fallen, with devastating results. But God had not abandoned us to what would have been our fate, eternal destruction, the fate that science says awaits us. Instead, even before the world began, the plan of salvation was formulated, as we read in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. And at great personal cost to himself, Jesus came to this world, suffered on the cross, and promises to return. And by the time everything is over and sin is destroyed, the world that had been lost will be fully restored. What's amazing, though, is that God calls us, his church, even now, to have a part to play working toward this restoration. Question. Read in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through to 12, the story of how some friends persistently worked together to bring a paralytic to Jesus. How does this story illustrate the role of the church in healing and restoring people? Mark 2, beginning at verse 1, And again he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately many gathered together, so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. 
and when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So, when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise, take up your bed and walk? but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. The house was crowded because Jesus was there. His love for people drew crowds. The four men made a very large hole in the roof in order to bring the spiritually, mentally and physically sick man to Jesus. Then Jesus restored him by forgiving his sins, giving him peace of mind and commanding him to get up and walk. Jesus demonstrated that no one is really healed unless he or she is holistically restored. Question. How did the Apostle John describe the reason Christ appeared on this earth? What hope can we draw from these promises? Well, let's look at John chapter 10 and verse 10. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to, to destroy. I have come that they may have life, and that they may have it more abundantly. And we'll also look at 1 John chapter 3 verse 8. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. It has been said that John 10.10 10 is the Seventh-day Adventist message in a nutshell. It was clearly Christ's mission statement, a major role for Christ's body, his church is to follow in his footsteps and undo the work of the devil by replacing death with abundant life. We're going to look at Acts chapter 10 verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And 1 John 2 and verse 6, He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk, just as he walked. The church is called to partner with Christ in moving people toward being restored in God's image, physically, mentally and spiritually. So to finish today, who are people in need of your help right now? Help that you're especially equipped to give. Friday, July 1. To start our reading today, we're invited to look at some passages on the restoration of God's image. 
Some of these we've already read, but there are more as well. Romans 8.29 For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And Colossians 3 verses 9 through to 11, Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge, according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. And Second Corinthians 3.18 But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. And Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And then there's an invitation to read the chapters The Creation, The Temptation and Fall, and The Plan of Redemption from Patriarchs and Prophets, page 44 to 70, which is outside the scope of reading this lesson. It would take longer than the lesson, a total of 26 pages. You might look to look at those yourself in the book Patriarchs and Prophets, page 44 through to 70. As a people, we have been called by God to work for others, for the good of others, to seek to point others to the promises of hope and restoration that we have been given in Jesus. There are different ways the Lord can work through us to do this. Some churches provide physical restoration to the people in their community with health programs and services. Also, the church's systems of hospitals and clinics work together and toward this same goal. Mental restoration and enrichment can take place through classes that equip community members to meet their life needs. Churches also may establish or improve local schools, teach job skills, provide literacy education, tutoring, mentoring and psychological counselling and so on. As they continue their quest for restoration and an abundant life, many people in the community will realise that they need spiritual and moral restoration too, even though they didn't originally think so. In fact, this is a key facet of restoration to God's image, as we read in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through to 24. That you put off concerning your former conduct the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God, in true righteousness and holiness. The church is uniquely positioned and equipped to meet these spiritual needs, better than any secular, social or health organisation. And that brings us to our three discussion questions for this week. One, give examples of what your church is already doing toward the physical, mental and spiritual restoration of the people in your community. What is your church doing in this area? Share with your class your ideas for expanding your church's restorative ministries in your community. Two, how do we understand this idea of physical restoration? After all, no matter what we do to help others regain their health, unless the Lord comes back in their lifetime, most will eventually succumb to disease and the ravages of old age. 
Why is this more proof that full restoration can come only after Jesus returns? And question number three. Discuss the idea of what it means to start being restored into God's image now. How does that work? How can we know whether we are making progress? Why must we have a clear picture of God in order for that restoration to happen? How can we learn not to give up in discouragement if we don't see the progress that we think we ought to have? Inside Story Our mission story this week is titled Dismissed but Determined, Part 1 and it's by Isaiah Malik Garang from South Sudan. The visiting Anglican Archbishop barely looked at the priest kneeling before him as he dipped his finger into a bowl of ash and painted a small cross on the priest's forehead. It was Ash Wednesday and we felt honoured to have such a high church official visiting southern Sudan. But when my turn came to step forward and kneel, I did not go forward. My fellow priests urged me to kneel and receive the cross, but I refused. In all my years as a priest in Sudan, I had never found a reference to such a service in the Bible, and, if it was not in the Bible, I felt I should not take part. The Archbishop reported my actions to the Church, which took swift action. Within two days, another priest and I were dismissed from our positions for refusing the Ashen Cross. Ten years of dedicated service to the Church were as dust beneath our feet. The elders of the seventeen churches I had overseen were called in and questioned. Any of them deemed loyal to me were relieved of their church duties. Before the dust settled, eighty-two people, from church leaders to innocent members, had been dismissed from church office or membership. I was deeply shaken. What did I do that was such a threat to my church, I wondered. I was forbidden even to enter the church I had so recently led. Some church members feared that if they were seen speaking to me, they too would be dismissed. But in time I heard that others were unhappy about what had happened. I needed to know the truth about God, the truth that had resulted in my dismissal. I spent hours a day studying the Bible, searching to know God's truth. Some time later, Solomon, a distant cousin, came to visit my family. Conversation turned to spiritual matters, and I asked him about his beliefs. Solomon told me that he was a Seventh-day Adventist. Later I mulled over what Solomon had said about the Sabbath. I had heard of Sabbath keepers before, but I thought that they were like Jews and did not believe in Jesus. I remembered that while studying in the seminary, I had asked the priest why the holy day had been changed from Saturday to Sunday, but he could not give me a satisfactory answer. Some said Jesus had made the change. Others said that it was changed to honour Jesus, who rose from the dead on Sunday. These answers left me unsatisfied. And if you're unsatisfied that this story is not finished, make sure you read next week's lesson because the story continues at the end of next week's Sabbath School lesson. Have a great Sabbath. 
This week's lesson has been read by Dr. Percy Harold in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired. It is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Hope Channel. Remember, God is always faithful.